Hello, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about what is design, covering design fields and basics. If you would like to grow as an artist and you can't afford an art class, we've got everything you need here at ArtProf, critiques, tutorials, and professional development. Design is a gigantic field. There are many different parts of it. We've got apparel design, textile design, footwear, furniture, architecture, landscape architecture, interior architecture, game and toy design, graphic design, fashion design, <laughs> apparel design, and industrial design, which by the way, we do have a stream with Dorian that we did earlier with specifics of industrial design. Let's start out by distinguishing the difference between design and fine art. Now there, there is some overlap depending on the artist and the item we're talking about, but Kat, here we have an example where it is easy to say, well, there's textiles design, but then there's also textiles artist. So for you, Kat, what is the difference between these two? For me, I have two definitions for the differences between design versus art. So in the case of textile design, I think a lot of it has to do with functionality, which is the primary concern. Whereas textiles art, the primary concern is expression. But another definition could be the spaces in which each are being sold and how they are being produced. So something that counts under design might be more mass produced or maybe intended for somebody else to produce for you. And typically they are sold in stores or commercial places in general, whereas textiles art might be shown in a gallery versus a store. So it really depends. There is a lot of overlap, but those are my two main definitions to distinguish between the two. Well, we have a difference here between industrial design, which oftentimes is three-dimensional, but then we also have sculpture, which is three-dimensional. Dorian, what's the difference here between industrial design and sculpture? Oh, Dorian, you're muted. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no you know, these technical difficulties are going to be great. But yeah, I think that there's something to be said about the expression uh, behind a lot of the works created. In industrial design, there's a lot of things that are focusing on solving a solution or, a pro or solving a problem with a solution uh, of a product. And I think sculpture is more expressive and facilitates like a dialogue between people as you view the piece. Um, so I think that can be accomplished with products and industrial design, but the main focus of the sculpture achieves that naturally. Uh, and I think with design, design focuses more on the making of the bare minimum or the bare bones of the project or material, whatever it might be, versus the fine arts aspect actually utilizes those materials to create. Kat, you brought up an important distinction, which is context, where the artwork is seen or used. And where it gets confusing is that most of us do expect sculptures to be in a museum, but sometimes they're 
of like Aria. And then other times, industrial design is in a museum, even though most of the time it is seen in, say, a retail store. So th this is where it just gets very confusing for a lot of people. So I'm curious, tell us in the chat, what do you think is the difference? Or, or rather, what is something you associate with design that maybe you don't associate with fine art? For me, a lot of it is the mass production. Sure, you can produce a lot of sculptures, you can cast it, but it's not the same thing as, say, a teacup, which they can make thousands and thousands of those. So the mass production, the scale of production, I think for me, that's one of the biggest differences. So Kat, what do we mean by form follows function? Because this is probably the most fundamental concept behind a lot of design. This truly is one of the most famous quotes when it comes to talking about industrial design. My interpretation of it is that function should always be the primary concern and form follows it. So a good design functions well, but an outstanding design functions well and is expressive. Dorian, what's your definition of form follows function? How do you interpret that? I think Kat said it beautifully. Uh, I think at the end of the day, if you look at functionality, you also have to define functionality, but that should be the main focus of every design is achieving a specific goal at the end of it. And then the form should follow suit because at, after a certain point, the form is what people are going to see, but if it doesn't work as a product or if it doesn't work as an actual creation, then it doesn't have a real purpose. You could have terrible function. I mean, my kid once brought home this pencil sharpener and was shaped like a high-heeled shoe. And it didn't work because the stupid heel part of the shoe was in the way of the blade. And so the thing about design is that we say function, but isn't it extraordinary how many terrible designs are out there? Like Kat, can you think of something that's driven you crazy in terms of design where you buy something and you're like, dude, this spatula does not work. Uh, actually not a product, but I did see a logo design that was just really unclear. So there was a jewelry store near my home in California and I had no idea if the title was Clardy's or Vardy's because the V had a beautiful swirl in the beginning and sure that might look really nice, but that just makes me confused about the spelling. Is it a CL or is this a fancy V? And then a really long time later, I came back to California and I saw they fixed it. So now I can tell you officially, it's Vardy's. <laughs> <laughs> Dorian, do you have any designs that just did not work? In my personal life, oh yeah, that's every day. Uh, but if we're talking about in real life, I I know that there's this one place in Rhode Island called McKay's Furniture. And every time I drive by the sign, they have this random S that's just like floating above like all of it. It's like McKay's and then a tiny S and then furniture really big. And I'm like, it, it doesn't need to like, it's just the small things. It's like the nitpicky things that once you realize them, you can't unsee them and unthink them. 
and you're stuck with it forever. <laughs> Tell us in the chat, what is something you have used lately that just did not work very well? Because we're going to show you examples where we think the design is really strong and innovative for a variety of reasons. But, oh, man, there's a lot of bad design out there. <laughs> this is one of my favorite designs. It's by Marcel LeBrewer. And one thing that's interesting about this design is that the reason it was possible is because of the invention of tubular steel, which is the structure that you see in the chair. And a lot of us think about, okay, you have a chair, you have the seat area, you have four legs. And isn't this extraordinary cat that it does not have four legs. It only has two, but it works. And not just two legs, but it is combined with the entire form. Like that's just so smart. It's almost a ring at a certain point, but that ring is warped to give the impression of two legs. It's like the melted clock. And Dorian, we know, sorry, you go. Oh no, it's like that one painting with the melted clock that I can't think of a name of. Persistence of memory. <laughs> <laughs> And Dorian, you've done furniture design yourself. What are some of the things that are involved when designing furniture? You got to, uh, there's a lot of aspects of it. You have to think about not only where it's going to be. So if you're using wood, you have to think about humidity, if it's going to expand, if it's going to contract. Uh, you have to use specific types of hardwood, softwood. Uh, for metal, you have to actually bond it. So that means you have to learn how to weld. You have to actually have the pressure points planned out because if you sit in something the right way, it could snap. There's so many aspects to it that I don't think a lot of people realize. When you sit in a chair, it's there's a science to it. Like you're not falling down for a reason. And Kat, you have to imagine all the different people in the world and how different they are physically. I mean, I just can't imagine what that's like to have to think about a child sitting in a chair versus an adult. And so I, I'm just blown away, Kat, that these designers can do all this. I agree. A lot of design is also accessibility to design and considering who is consuming this product and is it accessible to them? One of the instances where that was really made clear to me was my friend who told me she's a left-handed person. And she said, this world is built for right-handed people, Kat. And I was like, I don't understand. You have a left hand. Can't you just do the same things as a right-handed person can? And she said, well, no. For instance, scissors work better for right-handed people, not left-handed people. Also the function of writing left to right. As a right-handed person, you pull your pencil. That's a lot easier to write. But as a left-handed person, she has to push the pencil, which is way more difficult. And that never even occurred to me before. Jane says, in our work bathrooms, the faucets shoot water out so hard, it gets everything wet. I think it's high pressure to save water, but they work horribly. Didn't anyone try them before selling them? Well, Dorian, you've designed furniture and industrial design. And is there a testing process for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the five main components of doing a design that you actually want people to use, you have to do user research, which means 
understanding the demographic, understanding what the needs are and how they can be met. There's the iteration phase of going through your design process and refining it, going through it again, refining it. Uh, so also third part is refining. Uh, fourth part, I would say, is actually user testing. So if people don't like what they see, you have to find out why they don't like it, why it doesn't mm. work, and what you can do to improve it. And then after that, I would say it's kind of like a somewhat final phase because as a designer, I don't feel like we're ever truly done. Like we always keep revisiting works that we love or are passionate about or might see room for improvement. But the final phase is after you actually get someone to try it out. Amanda says, my car is a bad design. It's pretty, but breaks down too much from poor quality materials. This drives me crazy when people want things to look so cool that they sacrifice the functionality. And Kat, I, I feel like that's a problem with designers. Like they want to make it so cool that the functionality drops. It's important not to lose sight of the grand idea. And the big idea behind design is that it has to function well. And if you don't have that, why even be designing? So let's talk about fashion design. Now, here's where it gets a little bit confusing because we've got fashion design, but we also have apparel design and we also have shoe design. So Dorian, can you explain to us how this works? Because these are all things that we wear in some format, but there's different tiers of how this functions. Yeah. So if you think about it in blanket, just as bare minimum, everybody has their own style and their own fashion to have your own fashion you have to have specific pieces or components to that which means the apparel the footwear the accessories uh so footwear is also part of accessories but that includes bags uh headwear earrings jewelry necklaces there's all of these components that make up somebody's style and their fashion so that's why i kind of define it as kind of header for the group and all of these other parts are subgroups. Would you define fashion as the overall look of a person? I would define it as the curation of all those components to create a specific look. Good question from W315 who says runway fashion is so non-functional. I can't even figure out how to derive ideas from it. Well, Kat, this does not look very functional. <laughs> so what's the purpose here when people are going to strut around like this in real life? So, uh, my, my favorite fashion show, runway show that I've seen is the Pierre Moss fashion show with Kirby Jean Raymond. And it highlighted the lives of Black people and also all of the designs that we kind of associate with white men specifically now uh, and their true origins of being designed by black people. So all of the clothing were variations of those designs and to see those on not only black bodies, but also in a black show was a beautiful thing. So it creates a conversation more than anything, which again, talks about the functionality of the piece. Uh, because if it can create a conversation, I deem it successful in a sense. 
because just as much as you might not see something in that dress right there, I could see so much and it can create a dialogue. Well, I think Dorian, right. that you bring up a really wonderful point about industrial design, which is how does it function? And there are different kinds of functions. And so to go back with the seemingly non-functional apparel dress that we saw, perhaps the actual function was to create a conversation. And this also goes into the murky territory of, is this design or is this fine art? What is, because everything does have some kind of function. And so there's a lot of overlap between design and art. And I think that we need to put things in categories because that makes us comfortable, because that makes things easier. But it's also really imperative to recognize that there are things that cross boundaries, that cross functions. And also, I think design can be about visibility. I mean, I had a student who was albino, and she said one of the things that bothered her about the makeup industry is they don't have makeup lines for people who are albino. And she had this idea that, oh, maybe that is a company I could start, that it's for that particular group. Have you seen that, Doreen, in design? Oh. That's, I think, where people get the best moments and the eureka moments that we seek as creatives. Uh, there are so many opportunities for design that you can overlook so easily because your everyday life, you're not seeing things except with blinders. You have kind of tunnel vision. So when you kind of have an opportunity to step back from that, your vision is broadened tremendously. Like it, It's ridiculous the amount of opportunities that there are. That's why I like doing sportswear in Blacktop Market. That's what started it all. And Kat, we're not going to dig into this too much during this stream, but there's also the history of design. We're looking at contemporary things, but there's also a tradition of certain types of designs being reinvented that, oh, this person made this shoe, now we have another take on it, here's another variation. And I think that history is fascinating, Kat. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think a lot of people might consider design to be cold because again, the main function is functionality. But in reality, design is very empathetic because you design with a person in mind, you design with the time period in mind. And it's very beautiful to see when something transcends time, such as shoes. We've always had shoes. Shoes have changed, but shoes have always been worn on people's feet. Absolutely. And it, it's really cool because I do think in some ways, Dorian, especially with the fashion design, a lot of this does have to do with identity. Identity shows through work. Because? And yeah. Or no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 you go. <laughs> uh, I think identity through work is an essential part because that form of expression and it's also the form following the function. If you're achieving what you want to with that function, you should have as much fun with the form as possible and it draws people in. It creates an identity not only for yourself, but the product you're creating. And it's a distinguishing factor that makes your piece better, in my opinion. Kat, I think out of 
a lot of these fields, industrial design is the one that I think a lot of people have trouble understanding where that is because it is so diverse what comes out of industrial design. Like my favorite industrial design is the paperclip. I think that is just the most simple, brilliant thing. But then how do we understand that it also includes lamps? <laughs> hmm. Well, I think Clara, you had a really good definition for it earlier where you said, not, not in this stream, but a previous one, where design, industrial design is any object in a home that has a use, literally anything from house slippers to lights to paper clips. Sorry? It's anything in a house that's not alive. Not alive, yes, that's, thank you. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that's exactly it. <laughs> Dorian, I think one of the most visible evolutions of design has been in Apple products. Who remembers this? I had one of these. <laughs> the original iMac because we were like, ooh, computers can be pretty. Because before this, computers were beige. They were gray. And th this was such a big deal when it came out. And I, I feel like, Dorian, there's a new iPad, I whatever every year. Yes. The growth of Apple is scary because they started off with something so simplistic, yet the ways that they introduce expression through the things that they've created, like having the iPod, that in itself changed everything because you could have your music on the go when you wanted and it will replace the Walkman and you could just have it in your pocket. You don't have to think about it too much. It was indestructible. Like there's so many parts of it that made it, this is something for me and nobody else is going to have the kind of thing. So. Yeah, they do a really great job at promoting their branding. They've always been good at it. I just, it's, oh, it's wild. And cars. I think a lot of us were like, oh yeah, cars are for driving, but I can't imagine how much goes into designing a car from a mechanical point of view, from the form. I mean, somebody had to sculpt a model of this at one point. Mm. I think that, cars are sort of like the pinnacle for me in seeing how artists and designers and engineers have to work in tandem with each other because i'm sure you have to have a lot of teamwork when it comes to making a car oh yeah <laughs> well because as a fine artist i just make painting i i don't need help from anybody to make sure that something's not going to fall over when I try to make it. Dorian, have you had to collaborate with people in that way? That's my favorite part of designing because having an outside perspective that can challenge my current creative process, that can challenge my current idea, it elevates it and helps it more relatable past just myself. Like it makes other people want to be a part of it. And by having that form of collaboration, it also gives the other artist or creative or mathematician, engineer, whoever it is, it gives them an opportunity to challenge themselves. So it's a great way of crossing over. Also, one of my favorite and people toasters keep in the revising. World. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used a Toastmaster before, but isn't this fun to see how it started? and how ergonomic 
it is now and it's very enclosed i mean uh -huh. it, it's sort of boring looking compared to this one it, this one's just like a box which, which i'm sure it works but it's not really that exciting <laughs> art deco really now, had a large design oh <laughs> uh art deco had a huge influence on a lot of the designs during that time so that's one of my favorite pieces yes they did really well with architecture and i think a lot of people think about art nouveau as being oh alphonse mucha and all these pretty ladies with hair and flowers but the design aspect of the art nouveau movement was truly extraordinary now kat could we argue that the guy that designed the plastic flamingos that people put on their lawns don featherstone I mean, is that really functional, a plastic flamingo? <laughs> well, again, there are different kinds of functions. Maybe the functioneer is take up space in an otherwise empty lawn. And I think the flamingo is a great just thing that takes up space. <laughs> we have a yeah. comment from Melissa who says, design is a way to give character to a seemingly uninteresting everyday item while maintaining function, toasters, vacuums, etc. There are some designs that really make me happy where I have some kitchen item and I have the silly, it, it's so dumb, I can't believe I bought it. It's a plastic avocado container. So it's shaved like an avocado. And you know something, most of the time we don't even use it for an avocado. I think it has onions in it right now. But Dorian, do you have designs that make you happy? I So I will look at a shoe and immediately get happy based off of the materials and just also the history of the shoe, any type like that. I love looking at architecture, like the pedestrian bridge in Providence. Like, did they need to spend that much money on it? No, but is it nice? I, I do enjoy it. Like, it has a great view of the city. Uh, and also just headphones. Like, I love Bose headphones for this. Like, I love these things with my life. Just the functionality, the way that they bend. Them. I can break things easily. So having something like that, that's comfortable, really good function, but also looks good and clean. Yeah. <laughs> So we're looking at some textile designs and you'll notice that these last few slides that I showed, these are all from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Congo, sorry, not Congo. <laughs> Sometimes I think design can be based on culture. Oh, absolutely. I think that Dorian mentioned earlier about Art Deco being such a huge influence on this, all areas of design. And so culture, as well as trends, all of these things are applicable in design. Again, design is a very empathetic practice because you're designing for people, for cultures, for time periods. But I want to add to the earlier conversation of adding character with design. Certainly you can add character with design, but I think another function of design is to be invisible almost. Because can you imagine having, for instance, a horribly designed toilet? That counts as industrial design. Toilets are such a functional thing. And the fact that you can use any of these objects without even thinking twice about it, that should make you happy. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I really like this comment from Sarah who says, I have a little strawberry hauler that gives me inordinately joy. It does its one job perfectly and saves the part of the top of the strawberry that I usually toss. I need to get one of those, Sarah, because I'm terrible. I cut off the top of my strawberries and I waste <laughs> those little pieces of strawberry flesh. So I really need to get one of those. And we have also another comment here where Seven Angelic says, I would have imagined all the modern modeling being done in software, but who knows? So Dorian, you use all kinds of software, Rhino and stuff like that, but you also have a sketchbook with a pencil. I don't do anything unless I draw it in the sketchbook first. The analog version, just having that thing right in front of you, as raw as it can be, as quick as you can do it, I think it just makes for, you don't break it down as much as you would if it were on a computer screen. Like all the nuts and bolts, you can fix those on the computer later. But if you have it on pen and paper, you get so many more ideas as quick as possible out of the way. Let's talk about architecture. Now, architecture is a huge field. But then also within architecture, we have interior architecture and we also have landscape architecture. So Kat, I sometimes cannot wrap my head around how a drawing like this turns into this. Like what a power trip. <laughs> it is a power trip, I guess, but it's also such a huge responsibility. I cannot imagine being an architect because to design buildings that people are going to be in enormous responsibility. And I think that architecture really is one of those fields where you have to do some grand scale problem solving because not only are you going to think about the infrastructure of such a building, but you also have a budget. That budget is very limiting in terms of what you can do with architecture. Yeah, and it's extraordinary how much approval. I mean, think about to build this house on this land, how did Frank Lloyd Wright get the to build here or did somebody in it? And so this is on such a gigantic scale. And I have to think that there must be a degree of compromise for the architect that they don't just to say, oh, I want to make this. They, they really do have to change things. I mean, I do not envy Daniel Leibstein for designing the Freedom Tower in New York. One and of the things... what about stuff like this, Dorian? Because, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, I was going to say, Frank Lloyd Wright, just touching on it real quick. Uh, he designed Falling Water, which is also near my hometown of Pittsburgh. And one of the coolest things that they talked about was he really didn't want to change the nature, like surrounding the space. He wanted to do everything in tandem with what was, what was currently existing. So for him to be so aware and conscious of that natural environment is why I think he was able to go and do it in so many more spaces. And it's that respect for nature that I feel makes his work even more beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Sundaria says, my engineer friend once shared a meme with me saying an architect's dream is an engineer's nightmare. I, I close my mind thinking about that. But you know something, Kat, I also really like looking at stuff like this. This is not 
Walt Disney Concert Hall by Frank Gehry, and it's so fancy and glamorous. I mean, this this is really a much more humble version of architecture. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of this doesn't get a lot of attention. With any sort of field, anything that's big and flashy will obviously take attention. But I think it's also just exposure and resources because people who are studying architecture probably have resources to certain spaces, materials, et cetera. And that just blinds them to the possibility of other kinds of infrastructures, possibilities, resources, spaces. And so I think the huts that we saw earlier, that's absolutely architecture. It's got all the fundamentals of architecture. It's got all the problems of architecture. It's just a different media. Lisa says the unusual buildings are interesting, but yeesh, I'd hate to maintain <laughs> one. Who accesses those small pointy areas? Well, Dorian, we haven't talked about durability of a design. Does it last? Does it fall apart after two uses? I, I'm sure that's something you must have had to think about. Yeah, uh, I think the big art school word that we hear a lot is ephemerality. So thinking about how temporary a piece can be. And if you're doing an installation, it can be for years. If not, you're figuring it out. But <laughs> I think the cool thing about the village huts, the different uh, structures that you're seeing right now, a lot of architects are planning on things being there for a long time. It's more so about the city and the place that they're actually putting it that really determines the timeline of how long it's going to be there. Because I know Providence, there are so many houses here from the 1800s, 1700s, like it's still colonial in a lot of places. So it's all depending on how much people in the space also care about the architecture that they're seeing too. And Kat, architecture really can define a city. When I visited France, I was going around to look at all the Gothic cathedrals. And I had no idea until I got there that when you go to Amiens to see the cathedral, that's it. The whole town revolves around the cathedral because everything else is very, very short by comparison. Mm -hmm. So no matter where you are in the town, you see that cathedral. And imagine if that cathedral wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about taking up space <laughs> and buildings are one of the biggest things that take up space. So of course your life will revolve around this thing that takes up so much of the space of your life. Dorian, I also think architecture has a lot to do with emotion because I'm not a religious person, but when I went to St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, I walked into that church. I was like, oh my gosh, I believe. I like felt religious. And architecture can do that. It, it can impact how you feel as a person. Yes, there's a great professor at RISD. Uh, his name is Bryce Dubois. Uh, he did a class actually called the study of basically architectural spaces and interior spaces and impacts on our psychology or yeah, psyche. So if you have a building that looks like a hospital where it's kind of dreary and sad, the energy inside of it is also going to be dreary and sad. So when you have open lighting, when you have 
big, tall, grand centerpieces when you're able to really feel like you're immersed in a space that's beautiful and energetic, it provides energy for you. Amanda says, then there are the engineers that design materials for designers to use and may find a different function than what the engineer's first idea was. Absolutely. I know Frank Gehry has been very influential with the types of materials and sometimes they're the first person to use this new material. And Kat, I just find that innovation fascinating because it, it has to do with all these other fields as well. Right. I mean, we were talking about the overlaps between design and art, but there are absolutely overlaps between art and elsewhere as well. And it, it can go, boil down to science or math, etc. It can boil down to the kinds of materials somebody would discover. It can boil down to a researcher's work and how that would inform what an artist will do with their own work. And spaces have different purposes. For example, Dorian, if you're designing a dining hall versus some sleek restaurant, you have to change how you approach the design. Yes. And again, it goes back to understanding your users, understanding the crowd that you want to draw in. If you know who you want inside the space, you'll have to accommodate for them to actually be comfortable and feel they can actually be who they are, where they are. Also, I have a pop quiz question for you guys. Do you know the intended use of bubble wrap originally? No. Hmm. No. It was supposed to be wallpaper. A toy? <laughs> wallpaper? What? It was, yeah, it was designed as wallpaper. How does that work? So it's like going back to that question, finding different uses for ideas that started off as something. They thought that would be a cool wallpaper texture. And somebody realized, actually, this can protect a lot of the stuff that we're moving around. So it's mm -hmm. all about finding the user, understanding what's actually the best purpose for designs as well. Game and toy design. Now, this is such an interesting field because there are games that have existed for centuries. And it really does become about interpretation. Because Kat, think about chess. That is such an old game and everybody can design their own chess set. There is some kind of chess in all kinds of cultures. Like there's also Go, the East Asian game Go. And I guess there's checkers, if we can count that. But there are iterations of these kind of games like Connect Four. I would somehow connect four makes me think of checkers, which then makes me think of chess. And so you can have one idea and it can just sprout all of these other branches of ideas. Dorian, what happened here? Why is Charles Darrow crossed out? <laughs> so I think a big deal in the design community, art community is giving credit properly to people and understanding where things were derived from. Elizabeth Maggie designed the original Monopoly board, but it was called the Landlord's Game. And the whole point of it was to talk about capitalism in America, monopoly of land properties, and actually getting people to understand their place in society. So kind of a social game. Charles Darrow decided he wanted to flip the game and turned it into the next slide, which is 
the current monopoly that we know, but you can see all the same things, the same spaces, the community chess, which was actually supposed to be something that provided money for all the people that were playing the game rather than it being selective. So her game really wanted to build community and understanding of community versus Charles Darrow turning it into the exact thing that it was commentating on, which is capitalism and monopolizing on lesser. So they charged her or they paid her $500 for the design of that game. And to this day, it is the most well-known and best-sold game in the world. And she still has not seen any of that money or her family hasn't either. So I thought that that would be an interesting topic. <laughs> oh, that's so infuriating. I mean, I have to imagine that's not the only time that that has happened in the history of design. Um, it, it is interesting to see what carries over because this is the original Candyland. And of course it looks so different, but it's like, wow, they did keep that initial path with all the colored cubes. And I, I just find that innovation just really fascinating. Now, Kat, graphic design is really interesting because have you ever heard people, they look at something and go, oh, that looks so dated. But it's like, how, how do we define what looks dated? Is it the associations of where we have seen these posters? Or can we really say, oh, that's old fart design? <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to do again with trends and time periods shifting because you do see a certain trend dominating a certain time period, but trends come back. <laughs> and so I think that to just reject something just because it feels quote old unquote is not a good mindset when approaching design. I think a lot of problems as designers and artists is seeing possibilities in different options. And so, yes, you can coin something as old, but how can you use that to your advantage then? How can you capitalize on that? Well, Dorian, what's your take on trends? Because that does happen where all of a sudden everybody's wearing that same scarf. Yeah, I, in what I've seen, everything occurs on a 20-year cycle. So things circle back after a certain point. 90s stuff. You can see how everybody was getting back into new balances and the track suits and these really bright colors. And like everyone loves vintage and nostalgia. Everyone loves to feel like they can go back to how they felt when they were a kid. So once we start becoming adults and have our own money, we can start buying the things that made us happy when we were younger. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like a lot of trends always end up circling back because of how it makes us feel and how it kind of revitalizes us. Clementine says trends do come back, but they tend to be reinvented so they feel new. Yeah, I mean, you see this in art history where you see artists almost doing an homage to a other artist that came before them. And I think that a lot of designers, that's the case too, where they're saying, okay, here's a play on this prior design. I'm gonna reinvent it, or I'm gonna reinterpret it for a more contemporary audience. So it's just fascinating when you look at the timeline of how design affects pretty much every single part of life is impacted by that. 
We do have a few spots left in our two March workshops, Transforming Your Art into Merch and Prints, Collage and Mixed Media Experiments. We are also doing registration this week for our April workshops. Registration is due this Friday. You can find information on the homepage of artprof.org. Please join us after this stream. We are going to be in the Discord doing a stage session. That's where you get to chat with us on voice. Kat and I will be over there right after the stream. You can sponsor a video. Help us create content for our community. Guys, I found an amazing artist model this week who I really want to work with, but we need to rent the studio. We need to pay the model. And I want to make all kinds of reference photos and videos for you. Join our Patreon group. You get to share your art in weekly voice sessions, find support in a close-knit group of artists. I also provide support and critiques in the Patreon group. ArtProf has a bunch of services, artist calls, personal art curriculums, artist statement editing, portfolio critiques. Thank you so much to our loyal top Patreon supporters. Some of these names have been on here for several years now. We are so grateful to you. Visit ourprof.org. There is so much content on there that is not on YouTube. Use the search bar. That is the quickest way to find what you are looking for. Artprof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel for more tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>